The world is not the same place it was 50 years ago. This is pretty obvious for people like me who were not, were not alive 50 years ago. Um, but I think for those of you who were, you notice many, many changes. One of those changes, especially if you grew up in the South, in the United States, was a kind of an assumption that all your neighbors went to church. And they had your, they were the Baptist church, the Presbyterians, and there were the Catholics over there. And that's what you would do on Sunday. You'd all meet at Luby's afterwards or, <laughs> or something like that, of that kind of effect, but this kind of assumption. And what this, this kind of post-World War II mindset led to is that churches like the Methodist Church, we had this uh, basic model of church growth that people would move to our neighborhood and would already be Methodist and would join, which is great. I love it when people do that. It's fantastic. Um, but that's, there's a lot of other people when the world changes. And you, you go to a restaurant now, and you think of how many people in this restaurant even know what Methodist means. And you just think, maybe, but probably not in the same way. And the kind of assumption that it's just going to happen and people are going to show up, which is it's great when it does, but we can't think that that's how church should be. Especially in the season of Easter. The season of resurrection, when we see and claim that Jesus was killed and, and rose again, and new life was found, and death has been defeated, and then we say, well, you know, it's, it's okay news. We're not going to really be too presumptuous about it. Death has been defeated. That's pretty amazing. In this, in this broken world, in this shattered world where there's pain in so many places, death has been Defeated. We cannot keep this to ourselves. My friends, we're starting a new series called The Next Person. The next person with whom we can share good news. And that makes a few assumptions. That assumes that we are going to share good news with someone. And that that next person won't be the last person. We do. But who is this next person? And it's, you know, oftentimes the idea of the evangelist, as I've shared before. Um, door-to-door salesmen learn how to be door-to-door salesmen by looking at evangelists in the 19th century. <laughs> um, that was a different model of evangelism, of, of knocking on doors, of asking the question, what if you died right now, where would you go? Of those kinds of things, of questions that Jesus doesn't really ask. Um, but, um, but it's more about like who are people in your life who are broken in need of the living water of Jesus Christ? And how, in a vulnerable and true way, can you Share the light that you have received, knowing that by sharing what you have received, you share God. Today, we are going to talk about the doubter as one kind of possible next person. There's all sorts of doubters. Today, I'm going to talk about a, a one I, I created, not a real person. It's not based on reality. His name is Jeff. No relation to Jeff Cecil. <laughs> Jeff grew up in the church, but... Um, doesn't hate God, but just kind of found like his life didn't fit in with going to church. As he, as he got a job, as he moved away from home, it just didn't, you know, he kind of liked sleeping in on Sundays. It was, it was nice to not have a thing to do. It was nice to be able to stay out late on Saturday and not have to worry about what to do the next day. His friends didn't go to church. He didn't have pressure from his peer groups. His parents didn't awkwardly call him every Sunday morning and say, well, you know, there's this church a few blocks away from your house. That didn't happen to him. Um, I'm not saying that's happened to other people in this room. 
<laughs> but, um, but the big thing and the big doubt was he was unsure of the relevance of God in his life. He had never had this really powerful spiritual experience growing up and so didn't really have that to fall on, fall back upon. So often when um, talk, talk about evangelism or becoming a Christian or conversion, there's a few different models of what that can look like. And the first model, the kind of assumed model, looks like the passage from Acts that Patty read. It looks like Paul on the Damascus Road. That this is like, you know, to become a Christian, you need to go through something like this. You need to be walking something. First, you need to hate Christians. Hate them. Then you walk along, and then you see this great vision. You see a circle of light above your head. You hear voices telling you. Jesus is talking to you. Other people don't see the vision, but they hear them, which is a really weird part about this passage. Um, and then when you open your eye, you try to open your eyes, you can't see a thing. And you're blind for three days. That's conversion. That's authentic. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that did not happen to me. Um, it seems like if that had happened to me, yeah, that would be pretty. I would, I would turn my life around for that. You know that kind of, but that kind of assumption that anything short of a Damascus Road experience is not a true conversion. Anything short of Moses on the mountaintop, thunder around the voice of God, is not true conversion. So that's one model, and I think it really is. There's there's an assumption going on for a lot of people that unless you have an experience as powerful as Paul on the Damascus Road, your faith is not true. We see this different model in John 21, which is is such a strange, like, I feel like it's so, because it's so weird, it has to be true. Um, Like, it's, it's just a very bizarre phrase. So first of all, Jesus himself appeared again to his disciples on the Sea of Tiberias, but they didn't recognize him. So he's on the sea. And he's standing there. He stood on the shore, but they didn't realize he was there. So this is first of all. This is Wesley's idea of prevenient grace. Jesus is standing there in your life, and you don't realize he's there. That's first of all. And that's for everybody. Whether you become a Christian or not, Jesus is standing there with you. And that's powerful to remember. That the first thing Jesus says is not, hey guys, look at me. He's just waiting. He comes to us and waits. Next. It goes on. That they are going fishing. Simon Peter says, then I'm going fishing. And I don't know if this is like in a really frustrating way, like, ah, oh, my life sucks, I'm going fishing, or I don't know what to do, I'm going fishing. <laughs> or um, I guess I gotta pay the bills now that I'm not getting that free free food from Jesus, I'm going fishing. Um, <laughs> we don't know why he's going fishing, but he is going fishing. Um, with nets, which I've never fished for large fish with a net. Um, it's got to be frustrating, especially, you know, when you have this dramatic, I guess, I, I fish for minnows with a net. And you know, when you fish for minnows and you get a few and you're like, so yes, and you get it back. But it's so dramatic throwing a net out that you feel like you have to haul something back in or else it's like, what a waste of energy. And just like, <laughs> and then just like nothing. And how degrading that would be time after time to throw the net out and nothing comes. And then they hear some advice from the seashore. Try throwing it out on the right side. Which, um, I don't know of you who, who know any fishermen. Um, they don't really like advice. It's <laughs> um, just not a thing that fishermen love to hear from like, people standing on the seashore. Um, it's like, you, you know, you can do that a little different. It's like, I know, I know what you do. Um, 
But he does it. They do it. They turn on the right side. And then suddenly this haul is amazing. They catch all these fish. And they're amazed that the fish don't tear the net. And they drag it back. And then they notice it's Jesus. After they see the fruit of their labors, do they see that it was Jesus with them. Jesus stood on the beach with them. These are the disciples who followed him. And they they still didn't recognize him until they saw the fruit of transformation. Many times the doubters in this world, the doubters in ourselves, the doubters in our life, are waiting for a Damascus Road experience to change. Instead of realizing that Jesus is on the seashore with them. And helping them cast They're waiting for the lightning to strike instead of fish to find their nets. Now, I don't think doubt refers to a lack of faith. I think that's important to remember that doubt is not just a lack of faith. Doubt takes an intentionality. Doubt takes a thoughtfulness. You have to, it takes work to doubt something. Doubt is different than indifferent or dismissive. Next week, we're going to talk about the dismisser. That's another possible next person. Today is the doubter. The doubter takes... A time. It takes time to doubt something. It takes care to doubt something. I like to tell people um, when they have troubles at work or other things that most of the time people are not vindictive because it's just so exhausting to be vindictive. Um, most of the time, people are not. People, you know, most of the time people aren't really doubting because it's tiresome to doubt. Most of the time it's dismissing. But when you find someone who is doubting, that's amazing. When you yourself are doubting, it's, it's amazing. It's something you shouldn't move away from. I want us to take a few moments this morning to talk to each other about our doubts. You might find it helpful to talk to someone you deeply trust, and it's okay. Because if you're going to talk to someone else who doubts about faith, it's important for you to have doubts as well. There's a vulnerability in that. It's okay to talk to someone you deeply trust. Usually when I do this kind of breakout session, it's like talk to someone you don't know. But I think you should talk to someone you know about a doubt. It's a vulnerable thing, especially in a house of worship. Doubts are vulnerable. It can be about God. It can be about yourself, about anything. So we're going to take like about 90 seconds. I got a nice timer on my watch. Um, so don't get too, too deep. If you really want to continue a conversation, there is after church. You can still talk to people. You can talk to people after church. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know what you can do? You can call someone this week and talk to them about God. You don't have to talk about God right here. It's this fantastic technology. These phones are great. Um, so I'm going to do, I'm going to do 90 seconds after, after we kind of see, just to talk about doubt with another person. And go.
And scene. There we go. That was great. We, yeah, you can just, you know, you can talk to each other this week. It's great. Um, we can finish that conversation. So we come back to the seashore. We come back to the seashore, and they've got brought the fish in, and Jesus is eating fish, which is an important aspect in the gospel narratives, that he's really back, that he's really alive. Is it because a ghost can't eat fish? Like you imagine, like Casper the Friendly Ghost, just like the food going right through him. It's not material. So the fact of eating fish is really important. So he's feasting. Um, it's one of the aspects of the importance of the table and sharing the table with each other, that there is a materialness to the resurrected body of Jesus Christ that matters. But we're back at the seashore. And then when they finished eating, Jesus asks Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Oh, there's my timer. But he says again. So then he says, feed my lambs. He asks the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon says, yes, Lord, you know, I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. I think it's like an awkward question. Do you love me? Um, Even like if you know the musical Fiddler on the Roof. but do you love me? Yes, I love you. For 25 years, I've walked with you. That's great. Um, but it's this, this idea of like, you know, what is the, the gumption of asking, what do you mean, do you love me? Like, we're, we're doing this together. I followed you through resurrection. What do you mean, do you love me? Are you doubting me? Jesus said to him, a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time, which is understandable. He replies, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. So Jesus' response to this over and over is like, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And so I want us to think about who are the sheep and who are the lambs in this. And one easy habit we can fall back into is think, Oh, pastor, you're, you're obviously Peter, and we're your sheep. And so you just feed us. Just feed us again and again and again, and we'll just sit back here passively, and you go find other people, and you make the church work, and do all the things. Do all the things. That's your job, right? So this is another model of church ministry that is not very sustainable. <laughs> that's, that's not the answer. Then the answer is not to say, oh, I'm just going to be this passive sheep. What is going on here is actually we are all Peter, and we are all the sheep. All of us. We feed each other the word of God. We feed each other the holy sacraments, the body and blood of Jesus Christ at communion. We feed each other through grace, through the works of mercy and works of piety. We feed each other when we talk about our doubts, when we talk about what is going on in our life, when we, when we take a moment to Ask, what is God doing in my life? When we take a moment to ask another person, where do you see God in your life? We are feeding each other in those moments. But the walls of this church are not a sheep pen. It's important to remember that. We are not complete as a church. Outside these walls are the sheep Jesus calls us to feed the good news to. To those who doubt, we offer not lightning or crowns of light 
or like three-day blindness disorders, we offer good news. The food of living, the food of life that is Jesus Christ. Do you ever accidentally hit repeat on your timer when you meant to hit stop? The food of Jesus Christ, the food of the second person of the Trinity who died for us and offers himself for us. The next person to share good news with is not a random stranger, but a friend who is in need of living water, who is parched, who is thirsty, whose life is not going how they expect it. Maybe they aren't ready for Sunday morning. It's a pretty big leap to go like, oh man, your life is going hard. Why don't you come to this really strange place where we feed each other God? It is kind of strange when you talk about it. Like communion, we feed each other God. That is what, what's going on. We sing these songs that people have no context for. We talk about conference and all these words. And so if you have no connection to the Christian faith, inviting someone first to Sunday morning is a big leap. There are other ways of sharing the life of Jesus with them. I know, um, I remember from a, a book by Brandon Hatmaker, would say, like, instead of first inviting someone to worship, you should invite them to dinner, to break bread with them. That's how they realize it was Jesus, right? At, on the walk to Emmaus and the end of Luke. They realize it's Jesus when they break bread together. They realize it's Jesus when they share food together. Maybe people in our lives have a history with the church and Christians that are not positive. Maybe they've been hurt in the past. And those are vulnerable stories, and those are not things to go like, well, what do you have against Christians? And like to be on a defensive stance, but to, to listen, to hear, to be patient. We feed the sheep through love, not the surface love that avoids conflict, but the bleeding heart of Jesus that refuses to stay on the surface, that refuses to let others destroy themselves. We offer good news, not because we think we are better than anyone else, but because the bad news of destruction is everywhere in this world. The bad news that you can save yourself, the lie that you can save yourself, that you can, you can find the best workout routine that will save yourself, that you can find the best job and have the best retirement that you will save yourself. That is the lie being promoted over and over again in this world. And we have good news to share. We have good news to share that we cannot save ourselves, but we don't need to. There's our God, the creator of everything, loves us. Our God, the creator of everything, has defeated death. Death no longer has victory, no longer has power over us. This world needs light, and we are offered it. This world needs good news. Not door-to-door salesmen but followers of Jesus willing to understand what God means to them so they can share with others, so they can bring it up in a conversation. So when asked, when Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? We can answer, yes, Lord, I love you. I'm feeding your sheep. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.